Well, again, grateful for your ministry among us, music team. It's amazing, really, the way the Lord has arranged everything, because there are subtleties in the lyrics we just sung that dovetail so wonderfully with where we're going to be in the Word of God this day. And that's because we come now to the preaching of God's Word, and we're going to be in Psalm 119 over the course of the last 10 years or so. Periodically, from time to time, I would just preach the next stanza in Psalm 119, and we've kind of been stuck in the 10th stanza since the summer that we were the wandering church in the wilderness, going from location to location, and today is the Sunday that we are going to get into the very next stanza, and they're going to be looking at verses 73 to 80, and so I invite you to open your copy of God's word to Psalm 119. And we're going to begin by reading verses 73 to 80. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 73. The word of God reads, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. The psalmist is in the fiery furnace of affliction. And so when he says that in faithfulness you have afflicted me, he isn't referring to past affliction. He's referring to present affliction and specifically to the oppressive nature of persecution. And you see this more clearly in the next stanza. Look at verse 82. There he prays, my eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? And the second line of verse 84, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? And the first line of verse 85, the arrogant have dug pits for me. And the second line of verse 86, they have persecuted me with a lie, help me. And finally, the first line of verse 87, they almost destroyed me on earth. So the psalmist finds himself in the fire of affliction. And that he does becomes incredibly instructive for us as we behold how this seasoned man of God responds to the adversity that God has brought upon his life. And as we behold his response, what we actually receive is a lesson in prayer, a lesson in how to pray in the furnace of affliction. In fact, notice the prayerful nature of this stanza. Second line of verse 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 74, may those who fear you see me and be glad. Verse 76, may your loving kindness comfort me. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live. Verse 78, 
May the arrogant be ashamed for they'd subvert me with a lie. Verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me. And verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes. The psalmist is modeling for us how to pray. And so this is a lesson in how to pray when in the fiery furnace of affliction. And whether you find yourself in the midst of that kind of a fire right now or not, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, then you know that affliction in the Christian life is inevitable. And so whether this is a much needed lesson for today or a much needed lesson for a future day, either way, it's a much needed lesson and will either minister to you amidst the fiery furnace of affliction or will prepare you for a coming day of affliction. And I think if we're honest, we often find it difficult to pray in the midst of our trials because the pressure of the circumstances themselves can quench our fervor for prayer. Or we can't seem to get our plane off the runway as we try and pray. And so sometimes we need to ask others to pray for us. And in that case, this isn't just a lesson in how to pray for ourselves in affliction, but how we ought to pray for others in affliction. And really, no matter how you cut it, then no matter how you dice it, these verses are intensely instructive and will no doubt minister to you this day. Now, let me give you a few brief details about Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in all of scripture consisting of 176 verses. It's made up of 22 stanzas with each stanza consisting of eight verses. And since there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each stanza is framed around the next Hebrew letter. And so since we're in the 10th stanza, The first letter in every verse is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that letter is the Yod. And this stanza can be organized in a helpful way because it can be organized around the concepts that it addresses, where each verse forms a conceptual couplet with another, yielding four pairs and four concepts. And really, even the the structure of these couplets within the stanza itself is rather noteworthy. And you'll want to track with this because it's going to frame the entire way we approach this stanza. Verse 73, the first verse in the stanza, corresponds conceptually with verse 80, the last verse in the stanza, focusing on the psalmist's personal piety. Verse 74, the second verse in the stanza, corresponds with verse 79, the second last verse in the stanza, focusing on the believing community. Verse 75, the third verse in the stanza, corresponds with verse 78, the third last verse in the stanza, focusing on the affliction itself. And verse 76 and verse 77, the very heartbeat of the stanza, focuses on the faithfulness of God. And so rather than preach this stanza chronologically, as we often do, we'll frame it conceptually around its couplets. And so the question is this, how should you pray when in the fiery furnace of affliction? And I'm going to give you four ways to pray, four ways to pray so that you would glorify God and even edify his people. 
And the first is this. Pray for personal piety. Pray for personal piety. And this brings us to the first couplet, verse verse 73 and verse 80. And though they both address personal piety, each one has a slightly different emphasis. The emphasis in verse 73 revolves around divine illumination. And so under the banner of praying for personal piety, pray for divine illumination. Pray for divine illumination. Look at verse 73. The psalmist prays, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And I want you to notice the logical progression of this prayer. The psalmist begins by prayerfully proclaiming truth about God. He prays, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Then he makes his petition, give me understanding. And then he states his purpose that I may learn your commandments. And so his prayer moves from a prayerful proclamation asserting truth about God to his prayerful petition where he makes his request to the stated purpose of the request that he would learn the commandments of God. And as he prayerfully proclaims truth about God, he confesses God as his creator and not just as his creator, but as the creator. Again, he prays, your hands made me and fashioned me. And so the psalmist here confesses what David confesses elsewhere, that each and every one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. And there's a, a measure of nuance between these two creative verbs. The word rendered made is frequently used throughout the Psalms to depict God's work in creation. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth and all they contain. But the word rendered fashioned speaks more to man's constitution, both what and who man is. And so one commentator writes this, indeed, this man of God understood that to which many a born testimony, that God knows us infinitely better than we know ourselves, since he has sovereignly overseen the framing of our personalities and potentialities. God didn't just make us, he fashioned us. And that the psalmist appeals to God as creator, as the ground of this prayer, carries with it at least two implications. One is that as creator, the psalmist acknowledges God's rightful claim upon his life. The psalmist owes to God heartfelt obedience. It is his duty. And two, since God has created him, he must then have the capacity to cause him, to make him, to understand to grant understanding, to illuminate the truth of his commandments. And that's what the psalmist craves. He longs to understand the intricacies of God's commandments, to not just understand what God commands, but even the rationale for why God commands it, which is why he prays, give me understanding, cause me to understand. And it's no wonder he would pray this way because God's commandments reflect who he is. And so as we better understand his commandments, we better understand him. And this prayer for divine illumination is a common refrain throughout this psalm. Look, for example, at verse 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. There, 
The psalmist prays, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. He wants God to open his eyes. Or verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Or verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Or verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Or Psalm 119, 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. And the express purpose of this, this prayer for understanding, this desire to gain understanding is expressed in the second half of the second line of verse 73, where he says that I may learn your commandments. The psalmist acknowledges his total dependence upon God to understand and know, to understand and learn the commandments of God. And yet, it's not enough to merely pray that we would learn them. Because not only are we completely dependent upon God to understand what he demands, but we're also totally dependent upon him to carry it out. And so we ought not to just pray for divine illumination. We ought also to pray for divine enablement. And this brings us to the second verse of our couplet. Skip down to verse 80. Pray for divine enablement. Pray for divine enablement. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. And there are a number of features to note about this prayer. One is that it's a prayer. So the psalmist is entreating God to make this so. He is calling on God to cause him to walk in his ways. And this too is a common refrain throughout this psalm. Look at verse 5, for example. After declaring how blessed those whose way is blameless are, he then prays in verse five, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. He wants God to work in his life to cause his way to be established in the statutes of God. Or verse 35, there he prays, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Verse 37, turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. And verse 133, establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. The psalmist recognizes his total dependence upon God and so he entreats him to enable him to walk in his ways. Two, is that this prayer is directed at the heart. He prays, may my heart be blameless. And so his primary concern isn't the outer man. His primary concern is the inner man. And why would that be? Because the outer man is merely the fruit of the inner man. The outer man merely reveals the condition of the inner man. When the heart is right, so too will the outward conduct be. Obedience begins in the heart. And if the heart isn't right, then either time or the pressures of life. 
and especially of affliction, will reveal the true condition of the heart. As David prays elsewhere, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, Psalm 51.6. God wants faithfulness, truth, integrity in the innermost being, in the secret places. And so this prayer is directed at the heart. Three, is that he prays that his heart would be blameless. He prays that his heart would be blameless, a word that is frequently used for the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. And in that context means without fault or free from from blemish. It would be without defect. Applied to one's life, it means impeccable. And so the psalmist is praying that his heart would be impeccable, irreproachable, impeachable, unimpeachable rather. And it's, 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 it isn't the only time he's used this word, this word blameless. He uses it in verse 1 when he declares this. Psalm 119 verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Those whose way is blameless indicate their heart is blameless and they are truly blessed because they walk in the law of the Lord. And when it comes to the heart, there are only two people, two individuals who know what's there. The individual, you, and God. And the psalmist is so committed to God and his glory that he wants to be above reproach even at the level of his heart. Where there would be a strong correlation between his private life and his public life. He wants to bring his private life and his public life into very close correlation. So he wants his heart to be blameless. Four is that he wants his heart to be blameless in God's statutes whereby his heart would be a sanctuary for the word of God so that God's word would reign supreme in his inner man. He wants to be blameless with respect to his thought life, his meditations, so that even in his thought life, he obeys the word of God. And five, he wants God to make all of this a reality in his life so that he will not be ashamed. It's appropriate to feel ashamed in our disobedience. A sense of shame is a right response to our sin. Look at Psalm 119 verse 5 again, only this time we'll keep reading. Psalm 119 verse 5 says this, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Verse 6, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When our hearts are out of step with the word of God, we will look upon the commandments of God and experience shame. And so the psalmist prays that God would enable him to walk in wholehearted obedience. Now, when you put these two together, the prayer for divine illumination and the prayer for divine enablement. There's an important principle to highlight here. And this principle is going to test your heart. It's going to be a mirror for your heart. It's going to reveal areas of your heart that aren't yet yielded to the will of God. 
implicit in the psalmist's prayer, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments is a predetermined willingness to obey. The only thing the psalmist lacks is the understanding. The willingness is already there. He's already willing to obey what he doesn't understand. Willingness precedes understanding. And so here's the principle. A prerequisite to receiving the necessary understanding to carry out God's commandments is a heart that's already committed to do his will. I mean, that's counterintuitive because you would think it would be the other way around that you need to understand in order to have the willingness to obey. That understanding ought to precede our willingness. How can we obey what we don't understand? How can we, how, how can we be willing to obey if we don't understand? And here's the reality. If God is good, and he is, And if his ways are right, and they are, then regardless of whether or not you understand, your heart should already be completely sold out to do his will. That you're willing to do whatever it is that God wants you to do. That all that you need is the understanding. Jesus said something very similar to this in John. Listen to John 7, 17. He said this, if anyone is willing to do his will, referring to the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Listen again. If anyone is willing to do his will, willingness precedes understanding. If anyone is willing to do the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So a prerequisite to knowing whether or not the teaching of Jesus is of God is a willingness to do God's will. Those who are willing to do God's will will know that Jesus speaks on behalf of God. And so how does this expose the condition of your heart? By exposing those areas of your heart and life that you're actually withholding from God. Areas where even if God granted you the understanding, you are not yet willing to obey him in those areas. There are potentially areas in your life where you are not permitting the word of God to go. Things that you want to hang on to. And not yield to the will of God. And therefore you cannot pray what the psalmist prays here. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Because there's not yet a willingness to do what God commands of you. You say, well, why would a believer be unwilling to obey God in any particular area? Well, it might cost you something. You might have to give something up. You may be plagued by the kind of thinking that being sold out to God's will is going to mean forfeiting some earthly charm, some earthly delight, some earthly pleasure, even if the thing isn't necessarily sinful in and of itself. 
And you might be unwilling to obey God in a particular area because you have life aims and ambitions that you feel incredibly strongly about and would rather remain blissfully ignorant concerning them so that you can go on believing that those aims and ambitions actually glorify God when in reality they don't. And so the question is this. Are you completely sold out to the will of God or are you withholding aspects of your heart and life to him, from him? And if so, what? If there are things there, this is that time when the spirit of God may cause them to fire and they're just flashing before your eyes. If the psalmist were here, I'm convinced he would tell you that you are doing This to your own harm, you are withholding aspects of your life and heart from God to your own harm, and not just to your own harm, but also to the harm of the entire body. And so today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Bring the areas of your life and heart that you're unwilling to bring under the sovereign lordship of Christ. Repent of them and resolve to have a heart that is completely sold out to do the will of God. And then commit yourself to praying, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Pray for divine illumination and divine enablement. So that's the first way to pray. When in the furnace of affliction, pray for personal piety. Now, second, pray for the covenant community. Pray for the covenant community. And as you pray for them, pray for their edification. Pray for their edification. Look at verse 74. It says, may those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Now, some translations render this less as a prayer and more as an assertion. For example, the ESV says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. But either way, the thrust is the same. The psalmist is expressing a certain confidence that he will be vindicated. And he desires that his vindication would be a means of edification for the entire believing community. You say, well, how could his vindication be to their edification? Because his vindication is a vindication of God's word and God's faithfulness. And since his affliction is well known among the believing community, so too will his vindication be. And as they observe this mature and seasoned man of God faithfully persevere amidst the fiery furnace and experience the blessing of God's deliverance, they will be encouraged and edified to persevere amidst their own affliction and trust in God's word and faithfulness. And so to help you to see this more clearly, When the psalmist prays for those who fear you, those for whom he prays are clearly the covenant community. And as they see him, 
they will do so and be glad, not only because he has remained steadfast in waiting for the fulfillment of God's word, but also because its fulfillment will result in him being rescued. And the church will rejoice. You say, well, why would he have this certain confidence that he's going to be delivered? Well, listen to Psalm 34 and 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He's confident that God is going to vindicate him. And he wants his vindication to be to the edification of the covenant community. And so there's a wonderful principle that comes out here. It's a new way to think about trials. A new way to think about affliction. That individual trials are community affairs. Corporate affairs. That the individual trials that we go through as individual members of the body of Christ have the opportunity to have positive implications for the whole body. That seasons in the fiery furnace of affliction are wonderful opportunities to encourage and edify the body. And this puts trials in a completely new new light and even gives us a new motivation to be faithful in joyfully persevering amidst them. Because as we joyfully persevere and come out the other end of them, even more like Christ, the church again will be moved to rejoice and praise and will be strengthened in her confidence that she too can trust in the promises of God, in his word, as well as his faithfulness. And so when you're in the fire of affliction, pray that your perseverance and deliverance would be to the edification of the body, that it would build up the body. But don't stop there. Because in some cases, you may also have to pray for reconciliation. And this brings the second verse in this couplet into view, which we find in verse 79. And so pray, not just for their edification, pray for their reconciliation. Pray for their reconciliation. Verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. So you can see that the covenant community is still in view. He is praying with respect to believers. He prays for those who fear God. And here, he prays that they would turn to him. The word there can be rendered return to him as well. Even if it's just turned, it implies that some in the believing community have turned away from him. And why would they do that? Well, we get a clue in verse 78, which says this, may the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie. And so it's quite possible that as the arrogant have crafted a lie concerning the psalmist, that the covenant community, some within it, have come under the influence of these lies and have turned away from the psalmist. And so the psalmist is praying for their reconciliation. 
that through his vindication, that those who fear God would realize the error of their way and would return to him. And there's a textual variant in the second line of verse 79. The NASB says, even those who know your testimonies and taken this way, the psalmist would simply be reiterating the particular group for whom he's praying. He's praying for those who fear God. That would just be synonymous parallelism. But the ESV and others say that they may know your testimonies. So there's a purpose for this reconciliation. And taken this way, reconciliation with the psalmist will result in those who fear God coming to a fuller knowledge of the truth. And really, no matter how you dice it, it's more than likely that the psalmist was a teacher of God's word. And since some in the covenant community needed to turn to him, it's almost certain that the work of the word was hindered in their lives. And so their reconciliation wasn't just necessary for the restoration of relationships. It was necessary for their sanctification, their spiritual growth and development. And this is a common way that Satan will work in the context of any believing community. Satan wants to bring about a situation and circumstance where the word of God would be less effective in the lives of God's people. And so he will work to seek to undermine the teaching and credibility of those who bring the word of God to the people of God in order to render that word less effective, to draw the hearts of God's people away from those who minister to them. And we read an example of that this morning in Galatians 4, where Judaizers had gone into the churches of Galatia, had undermined Paul's teaching and credibility in order to shut them out from seeking Paul's influence so they would then seek the teachers themselves, the Judaizers themselves. They wanted the Galatians to seek them and so they had to discredit Paul. And so we must not be ignorant of these schemes. These are the schemes of the enemy. The word of God needs to be fully operative in the hearts of God's people, powerful, energized by the spirit of God to bear fruit for God, conforming God's people evermore into the image of Christ. And so we must not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Putting it together, it is critical to pray for the covenant community while in the furnace of affliction, to not just pray for their edification, but in some cases for their reconciliation, recognizing that doing so is for their sanctification. Because edification, reconciliation, and sanctification go hand in hand. Now third, pray with biblical balance. Pray with biblical balance. And as you do so, Prayerfully confess the ultimate source of your affliction. Prayerfully confess the ultimate source of your affliction. Look at verse 75. The psalmist prays, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. With this confession, the psalmist acknowledges the ultimate source of his affliction. And the ultimate source is God. He confesses, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. 
And the word judgments can be rendered decisions. And in this case, God has seen it fit to train the psalmist in the school of affliction. And the psalmist recognizes the righteousness of this. In fact, he even confesses that it's an expression of the faithfulness of God. Where he says that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And we might ask, how can that be? How can the psalmist recognize that the source of his affliction is ultimately God and yet see that that affliction is a manifestation of his faithfulness, of God's faithfulness? Well, he can because it's in the school of affliction that the psalmist has learned faithful obedience. Look at verse 67, the prior stanza. There he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was affliction that taught him to keep the word of God. Verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's through affliction that we learn. We enter into the school of affliction. And so why is that? Why is the faithful affliction of God such an effective teacher? Because it weans us from the things of this world. Because it both humbles us and keeps us humble. Because it makes us more dependent on God. Because it reveals God's character to us. Because it forces us to apply God's word to complex situations. Because it teaches us to value our sanctification more than our comforts. Because we experience the positive effect of that affliction upon our lives. And because we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Who learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. And so affliction is a wonderful teacher. Critical. If we're going to be the men and women of God we're called to be. And so as you seek to pray. With biblical balance. Prayerfully confess that God is the ultimate source of your affliction, even recognizing his faithfulness in it. But know this, praying that way doesn't preclude praying imprecatory prayers. And that brings us to the second verse in our couplet, verse 78. And so note this, prayerfully oppose the secondary source of the affliction, Prayerfully oppose the secondary source of the affliction. Again, verse 78, it says, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. The psalmist here is praying for the humiliation of his opponents. And he describes them as the arrogant. And he defines the arrogant in verse 21 as the cursed who wander from God's commandments. And so this is an imprecatory prayer. And calls for God's judgment to fall upon these individuals. And you might think that praying this way is out of step with the New Testament. But praying this way is actually, actually, arguably the best thing for them because it's being ashamed that might bring about their repentance. It does them no good to carry on in their arrogance. And so by praying that they would be ashamed, they're asking God, we're asking God to bring them to a place of humiliation 
whereby they would repent of their sin and be reconciled to God. And so the psalmist, in praying for their humiliation, is praying for their ultimate good, that they would come to their senses and mend their ways. Now think about it. When people are seeking to ruin you with a lot, seeking to subvert you with a lot, what's the temptation? The temptation is to retaliate. The temptation is to ultimately respond in kind, to resort to their devices. And instead, the psalmist refuses to do that and declares his steadfast commitment to meditate on God's word. Look at the second line of verse 78. He says, but I shall meditate on your precepts. The psalmist is unwilling to resort to the devices of the arrogant. He wants to remain faithful to the word of God. He even says in verse 77, for your law is my delight. And so the psalmist recognizes that vengeance is the Lord's. And he refuses to take matters into his own hands and instead desires to maintain a blameless heart, even in the injustice he's experiencing. So know this, in the furnace of affliction, there is no incongruity in prayerfully acknowledging that God is the ultimate source of your affliction and even acknowledging his faithfulness in it, all the while praying against and opposing the secondary source of that affliction. And so you can pray with biblical balance. Now fourth, pray for divine deliverance. Pray for divine deliverance. And deliverance can have two different expressions. You can be delivered from within the trial, where God would work on your heart while you're still in the trial, and you can be delivered from the trial itself, both within and from without. And the psalmist prays both ways here. And so first, pray for deliverance from within. Pray for deliverance from within. Look at verse 76. There the psalmist prays, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. God's loving kindness refers to his loyal love, his covenant love. And the psalmist prays that the reality of God's covenant love, his loyal love in all its manifold expressions would flood his mind and his heart and yield an experiential comfort in his inner man, that he might be comforted by a profound and experiential confidence in the unfailing love of God. This is what it means to be delivered from within the fiery trial, where you are anchored in the steadfast love of God. And can say with the Apostle Paul that you are convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in who? Christ Jesus. And you will be able to resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so there will be times when God won't 
immediately deliver you from the trial, but instead will deliver you from within the trial. And you should most certainly pray to that end, that God's loving kindness would flood your life and your heart in such a way that you would find immense and glorious comfort in the midst of the affliction. But is it wrong to pray for deliverance from the trial itself? The answer is no. It's entirely appropriate to do so. And this comes out in the second verse of this couplet, that we should pray for deliverance from without, not just from within, but also from without. Verse 77, it says, may your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Some translations render compassion as mercy. Some render it tender mercies. And so the psalmist desires that God's tender mercies would come to him that he may live. And it's in this request to live that he beseeches God for divine deliverance from the fiery trial itself. You see, some trials are so intense, so oppressive in nature that they make it impossible to live, to truly live where they suck the life out of you and are so intense that they seem to dominate your every waking moment. And in those cases, sometimes deliverance from within the trial isn't enough, that there comes a point when you need to be delivered from the trial itself. And the psalmist entreats God for that deliverance, that in his tender mercies, he would intervene and rescue him from the fiery trial so that he would then truly live again. And so it's entirely appropriate to pray for both, to pray for deliverance from within the trial and to pray for deliverance from without the trial, deliverance from the trial itself. Now, as we think on the loving kindness of God, his loyal love and his tender mercies, As we live this side of the cross and this side of heaven, there are no guarantees of temporal deliverance. It could be that the fiery trial that we're in, especially in the context of persecution, could be the very trial that actually ushers us into the life to come, where we would lay down our lives in the cause of Christ where the loving kindness of God wouldn't necessarily be experienced in deliverance from the trial itself in this life, but deliverance from the trial in that we get to enter into the next. Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so the loving kindness of God doesn't just ensure certain realities about our earthly life, It guarantees, more importantly, certain realities about our eternal life. When we will leave this life and lay aside this mortal flesh and put on immortality and enter the very presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be entirely removed from the presence of sin, where we would be perfect in holiness and would worship the Lord as we all long to do. The loving kindness of God guarantees 
that that will be a reality, that we are in the hand of the Father and the hand of the Son, and that none can snatch us out, and that no matter what befalls us in this life, we are going to enter into eternal glory and rejoice for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. And so we have a wonderful confidence, a wonderful opportunity to exalt the loving kindness of God and to persevere amidst any affliction, knowing that one way or the other, deliverance will come. And so this is how to pray. In the furnace of affliction, pray for personal piety, ensuring your heart is sold out to the will of God. Pray for the covenant community. Since personal trials are corporate affairs, pray with biblical balance, making a distinction between the ultimate source and secondary source of your affliction, and pray for divine deliverance, both from within the trial and from the trial itself. And as you do, as you employ this roadmap for prayer in the midst of your difficulties, it will fuel your perseverance. It will be a catalyst for your spiritual fruitfulness. It will cultivate a biblically balanced perspective. It will bring glory to God and edification to God's people. And you will be trained in the school of affliction, being ever more molded and conformed into the image of Christ, which is the very goal of your salvation, a reality that will be realized when the Lord comes and his people are glorified. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are so grateful that we could learn from this seasoned and mature man of God to see how he prayed in the midst of affliction, that we would then follow in his footsteps and put the very roadmap we've just seen into practice not just for our own benefits, but for the benefit of the entire covenant community. And so, Father, we are so grateful for your goodness and grace. We give you honor, glory, and praise. We thank you that our trials and affliction have purpose, that you design them to accomplish a good purpose in us, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son. And so, Father, we give you glory and praise. Strengthen us, we pray. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.